Hello, welcome to our final podcast of this academic year. We're going to be taking a break over the summer holidays and we look forward to bringing you a back to school podcast in late August for the new term ahead. Thank you to all of our wonderful guests this year. We've had some amazing feedback and we're really glad you've stuck with us this far. And if you'd like to be on the podcast, please get in touch with me via DM on our socials or you can do by emailing me um, helen.bodell at twinkle.co.uk and I'd love to hear from you. Here for our final podcast today are Dr. Robert Sharples and Joe Thompson. And today we're focusing on transition and answering your questions, which we're really excited to do. Um, hi, Rob. Hi, Joe. Hi. Hi, Anne. Uh, so questions from our listeners. Um, if we start there from Facebook first. So Becky Bailey has got in touch um, and she's asked, where do you start with a teenage student um, who's had little education background in a home country? And in terms of language development, We've got a buddy system in place, but we're not sure what to do next. Rob, would you want to answer that one? Yeah, sure. So uh, similar situation if you've got a student who's got very interrupted education or has no education um, at all at that stage. And it's worth just starting by recognising that that there are things you can do for quite a wide range of students. Um, some students might have only been to religious schools and um, some might have had quite good primary education but then spent several years in migration uh, that's particularly something we'd see for example with uh, teenage boys arriving from Afghanistan you might have students who have just not been in school at all um, worth separating out then what they can do in terms of the curriculum and what they can do um, in terms of language proficiency Buddying is a great place to start. So the way to really boost language proficiency is lots and lots of exposure to English and opportunities to use it and, and meaningful interactions. So actually having friends in the playground is going to be a huge way to boost that English. Yes, it's the more social side of English, but that that gives them you know, a life in the school they can build everything from. I would really counsel against trying to teach restricted survival English. So much better to get into um, texts, into meaningful conversations around curriculum subjects, even though it's hard and they don't yet have that much English, rather than saying, we're going to focus on um, very basic vocabulary, very basic grammar structures, things that are far away from the curriculum. Because don't forget all of those things. Great if you've you've got some immediate day-to-day English that you... um, can teach but most of this stuff they'll pick up from their peers anyway because it is so immediate and day-to-day where the EAL team really comes in is making sure those kids can transition quickly um, to the curriculum so we've talked uh, previously about translanguaging approaches and and more generally using the students own languages for for teaching and for learning that would be fantastically helpful um, there's lots you can do when when you've got subject materials to make them much more accessible. So something that's often helpful is if you if you have a, a a relatively low level of English student and a text that's way too hard for them, do something called vocabulary chaining. So get them to pick out all the, let's say for example, all the colour words or all the numbers, and mark that as a chain through the text. And what you start doing is is you're scaffolding the students to to do something with the material and very quickly you find that that builds confidence which is what we're really looking for here so um, heavily heavily scaffolded activities that still focus around curriculum topics definitely um, really strongly supporting social interaction because that's going to majorly boost language 
and it's going to boost language because it does the three things we need it to. Lots and lots of good exposure, lots of opportunities to use it and use it in a way that's meaningful. Um, and then I think, you know, you might want to look at um, how you can support other teachers to support that student. So don't take all that responsibility for their English development onto your own shoulders. It's something that has to go all the way through the school. There's absolutely no reason why every teacher who teaches this student can't learn a few words of greeting in that language, that can't have simple classroom instructions translated or in um, graphic form or, or whatever's useful, because they can be shared between everybody. And I think making sure that your colleagues can really support that learner as well. I mean, it's difficult to answer in, you know, in, in a short podcast answer. There's loads written about it, and, and um, I'm sure we'll put some links in the description. So generally speaking, buddying is a fantastic place to start. Really keep focusing on how they'll build that language with their peers and getting them into the curriculum in ways that will seem impossible, but will work because you can scaffold it really heavily. Even if they're not doing much with that um, those curriculum topics, you know, it will it will make a huge difference. And then trying to get everyone involved in supporting them across the school. Because if you think about it, you've got a kid who's, whose needs are, are really different to the needs of most of the other pupils in the school. And to say one person who's not teaching them most of the time is suddenly going to be able to fix that magically. Well, it's, you're dreaming, aren't you? Whereas if you say, as a school, we're going to include this pupil to the maximum extent possible, even though it feels uncomfortable for us, we're all going to pull together to do that. Actually, that, that sounds really achievable. So it's a bit of a longish answer, I'm afraid, but I think that's that's the three things I'd focus on, really using the peers, um, getting them engaged with the curriculum as quickly as possible, and just making sure that it's not all on your shoulders, because that is a, a guaranteed quick way to drive yourself mad. And a team approach Definitely. is always going to work better. <laughs> Thanks, Rob. Anything to add, Joe? I think I'd just add, speak to, as Rob said, speak to your EAL lead, find out what the processes are for children when they are newly arrived. So hopefully, if you've got an EAL lead in your school, there's a process that's um, in place for what to do when that happens. Um, because obviously that's not going to happen just the once, that's going to be a regular occurrence. So if it is, then hopefully school's got something in place already, an established kind of system. I used to have, I made kind of a, a flow chart of this is what would happen when a newly arrived child would start. Um, and that went out to all the teachers, all the staff, so that they all knew. Because otherwise what happens, um, as Rob just said, is everyone will come to you um, as being that one person that can fix everything um, and can be everywhere at once. Um, so I think it's really important that whatever systems that you have in your school, everybody knows about them and they know the process of this is this is a good place to start, try this, try that. This person will be along at this point. You know, there might be some assessments at some point. We might do this, we might do that. But if it's all communicated out in a clear process, then hopefully everyone isn't going to come running to you in a kind of panic almost or well yeah and it's I don't want to use that word but it, from experience that is sometimes the teachers I've had you know panicking about it so I think over time obviously as the EAL lead you can do lots of things to alleviate that and I like to think hopefully that when I left my last school we didn't have that panic that we we may have had a few years 
previously um, because there were established kind of ways of working and like uh, Rob said it's a whole school approach so if that can be in place I think that's really helpful yeah I think we're going to try and talk later on about um, the importance of systems and processes as well um, I completely agree with what you said Joe it's it's just so important to have it in I mean it is you know you've got kids who if they're arriving without being to school much um, midway through their teenage years something's going on there and that's likely to bring an awful lot of stress um, and complexity into the teacher's life as well especially if we've got children who've experienced trauma it's it's not something we're really trained to deal with and there's there's just so much in that question isn't there we could probably do three podcasts yeah, just on that is, but so practical things to do um the only one that occurred to me as joe was talking was get involved with other people as well so um uh, Helen's just started a uh, Twitter group, a Twitter community, which was great because I got an invite and I had to learn what a Twitter community was. Uh, there's another one, yeah, on bilingualism strategies, I think. Um, so these are great places to talk. There's a, a Facebook group and as well uh, and so on. Um, for the day-to-day stuff, finding people to talk to outside your school is going to be really helpful because that, that will help just to ground what you're doing in, in the experiences of others. I mean, I wish we could all have Joe so in an app that would be brilliant <laughs> just click for the answer but but i think trying to work out idea, things yeah. <laughs> twinkle's going to branch out into yeah, I wonder how it. <laughs> yeah do, doing it yourself is is really really hard and with all the things that these these um children and young people can bring with them it, it really can be a lot on a single person's shoulders so not just within your school trying to to persuade other people to take on some of that responsibility and it is their professional responsibility but also you know having a good squad behind you who can bounce ideas with you um, whether they're local or, or whether they're sort of on social media is really important thank you really good um, answers there and becky's gone on to ask um about phonics so she's asked, is phonics important when students are new to English, um, particularly for secondary school and for teenagers? Um, I know, Rob, you've got some work on phonics. Do you want to go for that? Yeah, yeah sure. Well, it's a tricky one. Uh, yeah, to an extent, I'd say it can be useful. So it's important to remember what phonics is, which is um, an approach, a systematised process, if you like, of... Um, developing phonological awareness particularly and that and that leads to other things um we are, you often need to talk about decoding skills and so on um phonics in general i would say for children learning to read for the first time is i mean maybe not necessary because we people learn to read before it but highly beneficial for sure but not sufficient and i think generally the debate around phonics you know does it kill a love for reading does it overly break things down you know, you, you don't stop reading just to do phonics. You know, it, it should be part of a, a broader diet. And so when we play that up to um, teenagers, we think, well, okay, well, what role would that play? And actually that underlying ability, something we call phonological awareness. Um, bilingual children tend to be quite good at that already because they're familiar with the sound spelling systems of other languages as well. So if you've got kids who are literate in several languages, I don't think phonics is really going to add anything. Because it's so systematized, 
um, in the way we do it in this country, I think it could be reassuring. But I, yeah, I, I wouldn't bother doing phonics for um, teenagers in anything but um, specific circumstances. Now, I would say, and I don't think the evidence is totally clear on this, I'll be honest, but I'd say the jury's out on phonics for children who are not literate in any language. And you'll find passionate advocates, I think, on both sides. So so in certain situations, I would say um, perhaps, but remember that phonics for older learners is going to work differently for phonics with younger learners because they've just got that much more experience with text, among other things, and they're, they've got more developed language skills in in certainly their first language. So um, I would, as a default position, I would not use phonics for teenagers because I don't think it particularly adds anything and it takes away time from all the other valuable things we want to do. In very specific circumstances, I could be persuaded of the value, but but uh, you know, you'd, want, you'd want to do a cost-benefit analysis of actually doing that anyway. And just remember that because of their language development, because they're likely to be literate in other languages, um, phonics for older learners will be different to how it works for younger learners and one thing that can be really frustrating is if we font if we think phonics is the same for everyone or even worse we assume it's a necessary first step to learning english which it isn't um then then we don't allow kids to move the pace they need to we we keep doing work that isn't that helpful and motivation goes through the floor so okay. uh, long answer short question uh, the short answer is usually not Thanks, Rob. Um, we've had another question from Emma from Facebook um, asking for strategies to support new arrivals in the classroom. Most of the teachers in my school struggle to think of activities to support the child in the class with their learning and they're looking for activities. Jo, could you talk us through this question? What do you think? Yeah, so I think, again, similar to what we said before, I think if you have a, a bank of things that your team know to use that are um, effective um, activities and things that they can access and try prior to them actually needing them then you take away some of the um, uncertainty I think so and like Rob said if you can um, involve them in what's going on in the curriculum and the topics that you're covering just because they don't have the English acquisition yet doesn't mean they can't access the concepts that you're learning. So I think it's really important that you think of ways of including them. So that could be that they're allowed to talk about things and encouraged to talk about things in their home language. We've talked a lot about um, that before. That's a good way. Talk, again, is a, a massively important um, aspect, I would say, with any, you know, with any topic before... You're, you know you're expecting children to be writing in English and reading in English they need to be talking um, so talking in their own languages talking in English anything that you can do um, with that and then if you've got you know from your curriculum maps and your subject overviews you know the um, curriculum areas that you're covering throughout the year so I would suggest that you go through those and you think of some activities that um children new to learning English would be able to access in relation to the curriculum areas that you're covering and you have them already prepared so that you're not having to think on your feet um, in maybe more of a panicked way um, and then you, that you're preempting that a little bit so activities you know labeling activities sequencing activities things that are heavily scaffolded as Rob said earlier but they all relate to the curriculum content that you're covering in your class anyway so that you're not having to do anything um, different um, so I think it's worth it's thinking adapting rather than having those extra activities 
I think sometimes teachers think that they have to um, simplify it and they have to, you know, or they can't, they won't possibly be able to access this concept because they haven't got the English. Well, they might not be able to access it in English, but they can access, it doesn't mean that they can't access it at all. So I think it's that having that understanding and just adapting what you're doing. Um, and if you've thought of that, about that beforehand, that's much more helpful in my experience than having to think of it on the spot and if you can get that into the mindset of your your teachers and your team um because the children new to learn in english are in every school and in every classroom and if they're not in your classroom yet they will be at some point so i think it's worth doing prior to maybe you actually needing it and often i'll have people say oh well, i don't have any children um you know that are learning english in my class and i always say yeah you don't have them in your class yet at some point you are going to experience that so i think if you can um, it is a team effort and i think if you can be as organized as you can be um then you're not having to think in the moment as much so that might be a helpful helpful idea i hope thank you no, that's that's brilliant joe um, Rob, did you have anything to add on that one? Not really. I think it's a fantastic <laughs> set of ideas. Um, just something we, we talked about a little before we, we hit record, and that was this idea that there's a sense sometimes that, that teaching children who are different from this kind of imagined but non-existent normal majority, if you like, um, requires something different that, that you've got to find different activities to to do with them and, and that's often the case as, as joe eloquently describes but i think sometimes there are actually small tweaks that everyone can make to include children whose languages are different and the, the bit you said that really stood out to me was um can they understand the concept versus do they have the english mm. to understand the concept <laughs> in english and that you know it's so powerful. Yes, I mean, I can understand, um, you know, lots of things. If it's put to me in a language that I can speak, I can understand almost nothing if, if it's in another language. And um, I, think it's, I think it's a really good example of how we can start shifting that conversation around away from what activities do I give my new arrivals to um, how can I... Um, how can I make the concepts transparent? One, I mean, I mean they, they may in the end boil down to the same thing, but one focuses on your own craft and practice. What can I do to make the um, ideas that I want to share more transparent, more explicit, more accessible in another language? And to do that, you have a set of perhaps activities or, or tools that you use versus starting with those tools. Because if you start with those tools, well, if you're listening to this podcast, then then you're going to follow all the way through the other direction and rethink how you how you articulate concepts. But other people, if you're giving a set of tools and activities to other people, they'll often think that's where it ends. So, oh, right, I've got these tools and activities, I've made this worksheet, and, and that's the end of the conversation. Mm -hmm. I've done my job for these bilingual children. So, yeah, I would I, I just cast it in that broader um, struggle to, to rethink what it means to be teaching children who are not part of a white monolingual majority because that that's the big shift our, our education system needs to make the world has changed hugely um our classrooms have changed hugely and i don't think it's really that deeply embedded in in how the education system operates yet no that's really true thank you rob um oh, have you got the questions <laughs> 
The um, other questions come from Twitter. Um, what should we do to be getting ready for September? So that's a quite a big question. Um, but obviously people are ready for transition now and looking at new classes, um, students looking at new schools. And what can educators do um, to be getting ready for September, do you think? So in terms of primary, we talked about this a little bit earlier, I think there's a lot of good practice in terms of transition meetings that happen um, at this time of year where the teachers will sit down. So the teachers of the children that they've got currently will sit down with their new teachers from for September and they'll meet and discuss the needs of the children and what's been effective and what's worked and I think it's really key that those conversations happen because that um, teacher has potentially had a whole year or maybe less but has had a, a significant chunk of time probably with most of those children so has a really good understanding so it's it's crucial that that all that learning is passed on to the to the new teachers and I think that happens in most schools and it, it happens most years and it's obviously easier in primary schools for that to happen because our numbers are smaller and the number of classes that they're going into um, are fewer so I think it's really important that that happens if there's any documents or any um, things that can be passed up as well I know there's we've got lots of resources on the site for um, transition packs um, for resources for children to complete that um, you know things about them that they want their new teacher to know so um, information that comes from the children themselves but also information that you know as the teacher has been successful and been effective make sure that is passed on to the new teacher I think that's really important. In your experience Joe, do they have a handover sheet or do you do it electronically how do people usually? Um, in, well in my experience all, um, all schools well in my experience lot it's different different in different schools but whichever system that your school uses make sure that somehow that information is passed on so it might be that you go and you go to a meeting and you discuss it all and the new teachers furiously making notes whilst listening to the the current teacher so it might be like that it might be on a system I mean some schools where the children are bilingual multilingual they've got um you know language plans and things like that where there is a central area that um you know a new, a new teacher could go to access some of that information um yeah. but I know also that other schools don't work in that way so in whichever way your school transfers that information and handles its transition I think it's really valuable that that information is passed on to the new teacher yeah really really important um Rob how else can we be getting ready for September yeah, well, if you're anything like me, you, you aspire to leave everything in neat and tidy, clearly labelled piles on your desk. And you think you have until you come back and <laughs> suddenly <laughs> realise you've got, you know, just just a, a horizontal heap of chaos uh, waiting for you. So I think um, things that you can do at this time of the year um, are to do with relationships and, and um, what Joe says about um, the transition from primary to secondary, especially, is a good example of that. Um, but also just thinking about systems and processes. That, that's come up a lot um, in our conversation today. So focusing on transitions and relationships then, um, who, who talks, if you're a secondary colleague, who's talking to the primary schools that are feeding into your year seven? Is it just the head of year seven? Does the EL team get involved in that? The SENCO is often there, but, but is the EL coordinator or their team involved. How does that information then go out to class teachers? Are we making sure that um, 
whatever information is is gathered and then shared, for example, by the head of year seven or whoever does that transition, do they know how to ask good questions about EAL and, and people's language proficiency generally and, and where they're at in the curriculum? So there's a curious thing that we know there's way more pupils in primary that are um, categorized as EAL than in secondary. And that's been the case for quite a long time, much longer than it would be um, if those if they were, say, a bulge in the demographics and it was feeding through. And I think a lot of a lot of kids just stop being listed as EAL um, when the, you know, when, in that transition to secondary. So that's a really good example of, of the systems then. Are, are we making sure that we capture that? Because what happens at the top end of secondary is that kids from some backgrounds just do less well. And one of the reasons for that is often um, that they, they need continued support with, with academic language development and haven't had it. So they sound pretty fluent when they get to secondary, they drop off the EL radar, if you like, and they do okay. And, and that supports low expectations about certain groups of pupils because they consistently seem to do a bit less well. Potentially, if we pick that up in the transition to year seven and sustain the support as needed, which could be done through the class teacher, just knowing what to look for, we'd see better results um, at the top end of the school as pupils go in for their key stage assessments and, and you know, key stage four and even key stage five. So... Um, there's that that big question, what information is coming in and then how is it moving around? Because you might capture information about children's language abilities, not just their EL status, the different languages they speak and so on. But is, is that then part of the information that's shared? And I think that's really important. The other bit is relationships. You know, do you know who's in charge of EAL at the local primary schools? And, and the reverse is often true. Um, if you're a primary colleague, do you know for the different secondary schools that your um, kids are going to? Do you know who the EL person is there? Have you met them for like a, a Zoom? Can we still call it having a coffee if you're both sitting at home on Zoom? I don't know. But, you know, have you had a chance to, to talk to each other so that you know? Yeah, what <laughs> what you need to be known about the kids, that the things that have really helped them thrive so far, that that's getting passed on. In the absence of a system that works, I think it's those personal contacts and a bit of internal activism just to make sure it is heard. Um, and that's the bit, I think if that was done, I could knock off the summer with a, a clear conscience. <laughs> I'm not convinced I'll ever get to a clear desk, but a clear conscience for sure. Thank you. Um, we're now looking... Um... Uh, how can students transition smoothly between classes at primary school? I know you've talked a bit, bit about that already, Joe. Um, is there anything that educators that maybe haven't gone through this process before um, need to be aware of or anything that you think they need to make sure they do um, that you haven't already spoken about? I think what I haven't mentioned is, and it's a massively important day or afternoon or morning that happens at this time of year, is that primary school children will spend some time with their new teacher in their new classroom. So that is the time for that teacher to get to know. And as Rob said, build those, that's when they build, start building those relationships with those children. And it might be that they know some of the children already because they work in the class, you know, next door or they've taught their brother or their sister, you know, they might have some kind of link to them already. And so that um, yeah. the process of building those relationships has already started. But again, equally, you might not um, you might not be familiar with these children that are coming into your class and they're not going to be familiar with you. So it's all about building those relationships from the very beginning. It's about valuing the languages that they have and making sure that your classroom um, reflects that. And what you do 
in that morning, afternoon or day, if you can find yourself some time to make sure that that's incorporated to the to the day, I would um, say that that's top priority of mine so that that child and those children from the get-go know that their languages are valued in your classroom. Um, so something that anything that you can do around that, I would definitely include as um, one of the things that you plan for during those days. I know you do lots of getting to know you, you kind of do lots of class building activities, especially if classes have been split, so they're new to working together. Um, and there's set things that you, you know, you typically do as a primary school teacher during that time. But if I could, yeah, ask for one thing for teachers to think about I think it would be a way of giving that message to those children and to those parents and carers and families so that they know even before they start with you in September that they're seen and they're heard and their languages are valued so that'd be my top tip I suppose. Well thanks Joe. I was going to ask um, I was going to add um, what would you do for parents it's just about getting in touch with them before it was yeah I mean it depends and again different yeah different schools would do this differently so sometimes after that day in a primary school or that period of time the, the class the school is then open and the um, parents and carers and families are invited in to kind of talk to the uh, to visit the classroom to talk to the new teacher it might be that you do that as a separate evening schools normally do something to facilitate those conversations so again you get to know those um, parents, carers and families and start building those relationships again. Some of them you're going to know and be familiar with probably and especially if you've worked in the school a long time but if you're you know if you're moving to a new school or um, you know you just don't know those children, those families or they've moved to the area um, recently then you haven't those relationships aren't there and that's a key time for you to be able to start to start building those. So I think of ways that you can yeah ways that you can do that. Thanks, Joe. Um, and just one final question. Um, looking at transition between Key Stage 3 and Key Stage 4 at secondary, um, to those last two important years of GCSE um, work for those secondary students with EAL. Um, Rob, could you talk about transitioning to those higher years? Yeah. So I think one of the challenges with um, older bilingual learners is by this point, we've got we've got a very broad term for for a diverse group of students. The, the large majority of EL children are British-born bilingual children, grew up in bilingual homes. By the time they get to key stage three, um, if they've had good support with their language, and I'm not talking about just EAL, um, you know, they're they're going to be achieving very very highly across the curriculum. And we know from from studies at all phases and stages that bilingual children outperform the monolingual average if their, their languages are, are both supported. So you've got you've got perhaps some children who are by this point um, perhaps even fully bilingual, that is to say they they um, they can use both their languages for the full range of things that they want to. Um, they're, they're likely to be stronger in English by some distance when it comes to their, their academic work. Um, We've also, by this stage, got um, new arrivals and a larger number of unaccompanied children. So we don't get very many at all unaccompanied children coming in before the age of about 14, just because it's it's not possible to, to make that journey at, at a very young age if you're not accompanied. There, there are very few, but, but very, very few. Um, so we've got that new cohort coming in um, that, that can bring in a whole new set of needs. And then we've got, you know, the, the, the usual diversity of bilingual pupils in a school. 
So the first thing I'd think about is exactly who are our EAL pupils at this stage and making sure that we're not perhaps offering interventions that um, are the same for everybody. For students who who have a high level of English, just keep pushing on it. And there, there's a brilliant article by, um, gosh, I remember the name of the school. I think I've mentioned it before. The name of the person's escaped me. We'll put it in the, the description. Um, it's, it's written up in the EL journal, which if you're not a member of NALDIC, do join. It's a fantastic organisation. But she's a history teacher and she talks about um, um, having a short language focused session and then using lots and lots of real history language, you know, popular historians. I think I talked about this in our, in our last podcast as well. I think that's a great example of, of how we can really push the language skills of, of higher level, older learners. But at the same time, of course, you've, you've got young people like we talked about at the beginning who might be coming into the school with um, very limited or education and, and limited English. So making sure that, that, we, um, that we break down um, that cohort and, and adapt accordingly. To an extent, I think that's fairly obvious, but it's it's. I see a lot of broad approaches used rather than really tailored approaches. And I think you know, if if we've got kids who are going on to take their GCSEs, for example, then it's really making sure that everyone concerned knows what their needs are and has those really really high expectations. So the other big thing that we see towards key stage four, it's when the results pressure in secondary really begins to bite, and um, where we can sometimes be pushed towards having to balance um, what we think the demands of the exam are and what children will be able to achieve with how we support them to do the best they can do. I'm slightly going off topic there because some other work I'm doing is looking at what happens when kids leave school at 16 and, and haven't yet got the levelings they need for those qualifications and, and there's some really difficult decisions to make there. But I'd say, generally speaking, at that age, making sure it's really tailored is the first thing we need to do. Yeah. Uh, again, if you listen to this podcast, you know that, but, but lots of other people won't. And then just making sure those expectations are, are relentlessly high. Yeah, that's really important, isn't it? Especially going into GCSE um, when they need that confidence and that support as well. Thank you so much to both of you on behalf of all our listeners. I've really enjoyed our conversations and I've learned so much more from working with you both. It's been brilliant to start this podcast. It's been such a fantastic journey so far. Have you got any final words or points to make before we finish for the year? I was going to say have a well-earned summer break. <laughs> yeah, that's really important. Joe, make sure you take that time out um, to rest yourself too. Thank you to Helen for setting up this series of podcasts and the many other fantastic speakers as well. It's a new thing to have an EL podcast. It's kind of amazing. Just think back a few no, years. This wouldn't, yeah. So it wasn't anything like this. No, you're right, Rob. This wouldn't have happened in the past. I'm so glad we've been able to bring the EL community together through this podcast. I hope you as the listener have enjoyed listening to our episode so far. Our work for the summer doesn't stop here, so please continue to follow us on social media accounts. Look out for new resources and ideas for September. And we'll be back in August for a back-to-school episode where we look forward to supporting you in those first few weeks back. Thank you, both of you. Bye. Thanks, Helen. Thanks to you too. Take Bye. care. Bye. Bye.